perhaps you wish you could be on that train. I dare say many of us would like to be getting away somewhere, maybe to see relatives or friends or just to get away from it all as we're experiencing just another period of lockdown. But this is where we are. We are in lockdown. But do you know, there will be choices at the end of this. Just as we might try to choose where we would go, which train we might take if we were to get away right now, there'll be choices at the end of lockdown. Choices of what direction we might take in our lives. We're going to look at uh, some choices that Jesus gave people in the Bible today. Two people that asked him questions about their lives and how they should go, which direction they should take. And we'll try to consider how those things impact on us, and maybe whether there's questions we might ask at the same time about which direction our life is going to take after lockdown. Well, here we are, still in lockdown, with at least another two weeks of severe restrictions of our movements. But this will end, and when it does, we'll all face choices of what direction we will take on leaving this waiting room. Will it be back to life as it was? Perhaps some small changes to the way we live? Or perhaps a more radical departure into a new territory? What might have been impossible to consider beforehand, maybe it's been made possible by circumstances which were beyond our control, but have perhaps released us into a new place of considerations. Jesus taught and demonstrated a new way of life to his followers, and sometimes individuals ask for advice on which direction to take. Let's hear from a couple of them in our readings from Mark 10 and Mark 12. Mel, over to you. Thank you. Mark 10 verses 17 to 27, read from the NIV. The rich and the kingdom of God. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God, all things are possible. 
with God. This reading is from Mark 12, uh, 28 to 34 from the NIV. The greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, in answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had, he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Two men and two slightly different takes on the same question. How should I live my life? You'll know that second example well as the great commandment. And it's where we get some of our core values as a church. And rightly so, perhaps, because Jesus says to this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> not far? What more is there? Well, let's come back to that one. And let's first look at the story of the rich young ruler. You know, when we read this through the lenses of our 21st century world, we might easily make a few errors in our understanding. There's no denying Jesus' words strike deep into this man's world, and into ours too, if we even begin to take the slightest close look. If you have almost any kind of a normal life in this so-called developed world, you are rich. Go to any part of the developing world and experience it firsthand and you'll see exactly what I mean. So this message, Jesus' challenge, is for us. How will we respond? Let's deal first of all with wealth. Some will say you can't accrue great wealth without taking advantage of other people. That you can't get rich without stepping on others. For some, just having wealth itself is injustice. In which case, we might expect Jesus' disciples to applaud him. You're quite right, Lord. You shouldn't let any rich people into your kingdom. But that's not what they say. If he can't be saved, who can? That's odd to us, but not to any Jew in first century Palestine. Their understanding that wealth was a reward for moral behaviour. Look at Job's friends, for example. When Job was living in prosperity, they had no comment. When he fell on hard times, they were all over him with questions and judgment about what must he have been doing wrong. However, Jesus' response is not so simplistic. He asks a number of questions back. In effect, he says, let's dig deeper into your question. And so Jesus opens with, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus is saying, how can anyone possibly be good? It's a rhetorical question. And he quickly moves on to ask about the man's life. Does he live according to God's law? Is that what he's basing his value on, his judgment of himself? Yes, 
All my life, says the man. Did you miss Jesus' reaction? He loved him. Or, more accurately, was well pleased with or accepted him. He didn't call him a liar, but he took at face value the man's reply. In other words, Jesus accepted that having wealth was not incompatible with virtue, either in how you accumulate that wealth or how you hold it. He was ready to accept that the man was, had been and was still leading a moral life. But that's not the issue, though. Do you know, I think Jesus would have known exactly what was in that man's heart. And his next words make that plain. Exchange your worldly wealth for heavenly treasure and come follow me. Again, this isn't a judgment on having wealth, but an observation of how it can hinder a godly life. Jesus' conversation with the disciples makes that plain. It's supremely difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The example Jesus gives of a camel passing through the eye of a needle is meant to show not just that it's difficult, but in essence is virtually impossible. We don't need to look for alternative explanations of his example involving certain gates with similar names that were very narrow or similar words for camel and twine. Just take Jesus at face value. It's practically impossible. In the modern vernacular, there's a snowball's chance in hell, if you like. Jesus is saying there's something fundamentally wrong, not with wealth, but with us. Wealth has a particular power to bind us, to blind us to our true spiritual state. But you know, for God, nothing is impossible. We need a miraculous intervention from God to see the truth of the influence power and money has over us. Without God, without a miracle, without grace, we are lost to its guiles. You might feel a little bit sorry for the young man. He likely came with a genuine request, born out of a nagging realisation that something might be missing. You're a good teacher. I think I'm getting it right, but is there something I've missed? Yes, indeed. Anyone who counts on what they're doing, living right, helping others, doing good, anyone who counts on that to get eternal life will find there is something missing. Jesus sets him up with his only God is good statement, then makes the challenge. Of course, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't defraud people or murder them. But that's merely how to live a religious life. For eternal life, for intimacy with God, you need to put all of that aside. Imagine you don't have any of that whatsoever and all you have is me. Now, can you live like that? In other words, how much do you realise you need grace, not riches? How much have you been placing your hopes on some form of personal merit rather than the cross? And how much does that personal merit of whatever kind keep us from understanding the cross? Let's think now about the second story, the teacher of the law. Because what happens to the rich young ruler is also like that other confrontation which we read. The teacher of the law in Mark 12. 
In both cases, Jesus shows that the law demands we give everything. You know, that teacher was impressed with Jesus' answer to the trick question beforehand, um, and he follows up with a question of his own. Which is the most important of all the commandments? His question might be just another chance to trick Jesus and trip him up, but it also appears sincere. He really wants to know for himself. Do you know, with some 613 different rules that the teachers and scribes had determined from the Old Testament, which one do I look at first? Jesus' answer is to refer back to scripture. Two passages, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, which includes the Shema. That's something pious Jews would recite each morning and evening, the first and last things they bring to their minds. And also contains the command to love God with all our being. Secondly, Leviticus 19.18 and the command to love our neighbour as much as we love ourselves. Thus, Jesus takes from both the main books of the law and boils them down to their essence. Love. Love directed to God and love directed to others. So Jesus then has answered the age-old question, vexing thinkers of all times, the tension between law and love. Do I do the legal thing, the right thing, or do I do the loving thing? So it's not so much about picking one or two rules which are more important. That's the question the teacher asked. It's not even about choosing love over law, as you might think, but it's showing that the more important deep concept is that it's love which fulfills the law. The teacher's reply is equally revealing. He recognises that burnt sacrifices and offerings cannot make up for sin. And this is where the two instances we read come together. The answer to the questions of the rich young ruler and that of the teacher of the law, the standard required by the law is impossible. It is indeed easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a good man to satisfy the law or a rich man to satisfy the law. What's needed is not our ability to meet the law, but our motivation through sacrificial love. The more we realise this, the deeper our revelation of this truth, the nearer we are to figuring out the truth of the gospel. Jesus saw it in the teacher and saw there what he didn't see in the ruler and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What's the application of this to our current lives? Well, let's ask a question. What is your attitude towards money? Because there's no getting around the fact that money is the most common of saviours in our world. With money, we can do all kinds of nice things. We can find our way in and around life, into professional circles maybe, positions of power, even rescue ourselves from difficulty, from trials or circumstances. Sure, there are other pitfalls in life. For example, building our lives on sex and romance or or our appearance to fill our worth and our self-being and fill our needs through those areas. But the Bible speaks more about the persuasive power of money, over ten times more. So, can we think of tests to see how much we might be relying on money? Well, number one. 
if you find you can't give large amounts of it away. Secondly, if you get scared that you might have less, less than you're accustomed to having, well, that's quite pertinent now, isn't it? Thirdly, maybe that you see other people doing better than you, even though you may have worked harder and it gets to you. Feeling that way means we probably already have one foot in the money trap. It's no longer a tool to be used, used wisely, but it's now a scorecard saying more about my identity and my self-worth than it should. However little or much you have, it's your attitude that counts. How then do we change our attitude towards money? Well, let's go back to the rich young ruler and ask this. Who is that man? Who is the rich young ruler that Jesus' response was that he loved him? Well, he was probably about the same age as Jesus. So Jesus could easily identify him with him there. He was rich. But Jesus also was rich. But Jesus' riches were of an entirely different order and a different kind than the rich young man. So what Jesus asks him to do is no more, no less than what he was doing himself, to make himself poor in obedience to God. Jesus was about to give it all away. And in making this invitation, he's saying this, I'm about to give my much bigger all to get to you. Can you give away your little all to follow me? You know, in that story, perhaps Jesus is the true rich young ruler. And if we can understand the transaction he's offering, we won't be stuck trying to give away how much we have to give away. We'll be trying to see how much we can give away. It's the same challenge, but a different heart attitude. So what train will you be taking when lockdown ends? When the time in this waiting room is over? Will it be the train of money, reliance on your own position or status, that having money of any kind, power of any kind or any other blessing must be an indication that you're living a virtuous life? Will it be the train of the law, trying to meet standards, living a moral life, doing what's right? Or will it be the train of love, realising that love fulfils the law? That loving God with all of our being and loving others as ourselves from a heart attitude, understanding the grace by which we receive Jesus' invitation is what saves us. And more, what motivates us and invigorates our every action. The love train moves away from the accumulation of worldly power and riches towards giving it all away, giving all that we have for Jesus. Jesus' power itself is moving away from those that love money and power towards those who are giving it away, just as he did. Is that where you want to be today? Is that how lockdown will end for you? Let's pray as we draw this to a close. Jesus, I look to your cross to the sacrifice of your big all, and realise the little all I have is nothing. 
melt my heart today with your truth. Purify my love, my life with your refining fire and reveal the gold you have for me that never tarnishes, always meets my needs and reaches out to bless others. As I yield control to you, may I live free to love without boundaries, to love God with all I am, to love others as I love myself. Amen. Let's finish with another piece of worship. And do join in, do sing wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I hope that's not going to be embarrassing, but do sing along and let your heart be lifted by these words. And let's be determined to be motivated by love. Thank you.